Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, New York immigration history and the parallels to today. What do the U.S.-based refugee resettlement agency do when we aren't allowing in many refugees to resettle? And discovering the world's hidden wonders, some of them in Brooklyn. Welcome to the show. I'm Ashley Ford. Thanks for joining us. I'm here with my producer, Ross Tuttle. Hello, Ashley. Ross, I hear you've got something on your mind. I do, Ashley. You know, it has to do with White House Chief of Staff John Kelly, what he said on Thursday during his NPR interview why, uh, when he was answering a question about why the administration doesn't want immigrants here from south of the border. You must have heard you about mean, this. Oh, yeah, when he was asking about separating families who came across the border. Um, their new and policy, right, to, yeah, to, they're to going prosecute to them. Prosecute, prosecute them, yeah. but separate yes. them, and the kids can go into, I believe, foster care or whatever Great was idea. a direct quote <laughs> foster care sounds, or whatever sounds yes. sounds magnificent I'm uh -huh, sure that uh -huh, that'll work uh -huh. well um, well so yes and they also so what he said when he was answering that question he said the individuals would be coming they're they're rural uh, they they have sixth, mm. fifth, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade educations. They won't be able to assimilate. Uh, they're uneducated. They don't have skills, so they shouldn't come. Mm. That's real interesting. Coming from John, what's his last name? Kelly. Kelly. Yes. Kelly sounds Irish to me. Right. So that's what a lot of people have been pointing out, mm -hmm. right? That John Kelly is Irish, and then maybe there was a little bit of the ignorance of of history in, in the Irish immigration situation in the uh, late 19th century, mm -hmm. um, when they were the ones who were receiving some similar pushback when they were mm -hmm. trying to come here for various reasons. So that's why we have our first guest today, um, a, a professor of history, on the phone to tell us a little bit about and remind us. About about some of this history. Right. That's Professor Alan Kraut, a historian from American University, who joins us by phone from Washington, D.C. Are you there, Professor Kraut? I am, Ashley. Fantastic. Good to be with you. Thanks for Thank joining you us. Thank you for joining us. Um, so, Professor Kraut, um, you, I'm assuming you heard some of these comments that were made by the uh, Chief of Staff, uh, John Kelly, last week. When you first heard them, what, what struck you about them? Well, uh, you know, it, it was a little bit of a blast from the past, if you will, because uh, the the remarks uh, showed very, very little in terms of knowledge about American immigration history, uh, and I was troubled by that. They were, they were insensitive remarks, but they were also um, uninformed remarks. Mm -hmm. In the period between just the 1880s and the 1920s, there were 23 and a half million immigrants who came to the United States, many from uh, Southern and Eastern Europe, parts of Asia, uh, Latin America, and so on. And the vast majority of these folks uh, did not have much education. Uh, they came to the United States. Uh, those who had worked in agriculture, some found jobs in agriculture, but other found, others found jobs in the building trades uh, or in factories. And uh, by the second generation uh, here, their, their children were being educated, often at the college level, and climbing the, uh, the ladder to success in the United States, or at least improvement. And so the idea that uh, because um, many of the newcomers are from the agricultural sector or do not have a great deal of education, that there isn't a place for them in our economy and that they won't succeed uh, is completely contrary to uh, the immigration experience of so many others. And so I was uh, a bit bemused by that and, and puzzled 
uh, as to why he made the remark in quite the way that he did. Why do you think he made the remark, Professor Kraut? I think it was um, just careless, uh, casual talk, uh, mm -hmm. that he wasn't really um, informed about this. But, you know, he made a, a comment, uh, probably feeling that, uh, as many in the administration do, that the United States needs to tighten uh, the nuts and bolts on immigration, and um, so that's that came out. But I think uh, a more thoughtful kind of response would have been a more informed kind of response, and a more informed kind of response uh, would have relied on the historical record a little bit more. Which is interesting, uh, because you said in a recent interview that Kelly's remarks are almost a verbatim quotation of what critics of immigration said in the early 20th century. Could you elaborate oh, on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, um, in the early part of the 20th century, even as all these immigrants were coming to the United States, there was a backlash against them. And uh, there were books published criticizing the migration of the period, um, all kinds of resistance. And uh, if you take a look at, say, the, uh, the Old World and the New by E.A. Ross, published in 1914, um, or... Uh, some of the other tracks that appeared around the same time by Madison Grant. Um, it's almost the same thing that General Kelly said. Uh, criticism of the newcomers, uh, arguing that they could never fit in to the United States, they would never be able to assimilate, that uh, they were sort of um, excludable and should be excluded because there would be no place for them in the American economy. Uh and it wasn't true then. And it isn't true now. And I, I, heard, I don't know if this is one of the arguments, too, that they'd be a drain on our resources. And I recently heard a statistic, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, where it was said that when Irish immigrants were coming to particularly New York City, they were receiving about 70 percent of the welfare resources being made available to impoverished individuals at the time. Well, first of all, there was no federal resources uh, or welfare as we understand it today. What there was was charitable contributions by churches and synagogues, and later some forms of assistance at the municipal level. Um, and there were settlement houses like the Henry Street Settlement in New York or uh, Jane Addams' Hull House in Chicago. Uh, so the, those were the kinds of ex uh, facilities and assistance that existed. And yes, there were some groups uh, that were very, very heavily dependent upon that kind of assistance. Well, great. Well, Professor Kraut, thank you so much for joining us today and helping us understand a little bit more about the historical context of these comments. Truly my pleasure. Thank you. We're going to speak in a moment to someone else who can give us a bit more historical context when it comes to refugees in the U.S. and resettlement programs that are lagging because there are few folks to resettle. And then, summer's coming up. If you want to get out of the city or explore its obscure attractions, we'll give you some suggestions with a guest from Atlas Obscura. Don't go away. What does a refugee resettlement organization do in the country in which it operates doesn't want its borders open to refugees. 
In 2018, the U.S. has admitted only 11 Syrian refugees. And the Trump administration has cut by more than half the total number of refugees the U.S. will allow this year. Even still, it will likely fall below that target by 50 percent. We asked these questions on the anniversary of the departure of the SS St. Louis from Germany in 1939. It was a ship full of individuals fleeing anti-Semitic persecution. They were headed to Cuba and then, hopefully, the U.S., but they were sent back to Europe, where a quarter reportedly died in Nazi death camps. A cautionary tale, if nothing else. To talk about these issues, we have with us Rabbi Rachel Grantmeyer, an education director at HIAS, the country's oldest refugee resettlement organization. Welcome to 112BK, Rabbi Rachel. Thank you. So why does the administration say it's admitting so few refugees right now? Primarily, the administration has said that this new policy is to protect national security. Mm -hmm. But we at HIAS, and I think all of us in the United States who support refugees, know that that is really a fallacy. Mm. Uh, I think that also we're living in a time of increased fear and xenophobia, and we're seeing that fear manifest itself in various ways. And sadly, one of those ways is really uh, the chokehold bureaucracy that has been grafted onto the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program. Right. How do we even begin? And I always worry about things like this, right? Because it's a policy issue, but it's also fueled by general beliefs that some people have. How do you even begin to tackle an issue where the problem is xenophobia or is like rampant nationalism? So I would say that these changes in policies and and the increase in xenophobia are really fueled by feelings Mm -hmm. more than actual beliefs. Mm -hmm. And so part of what we have to do is help people unpack their fear uh, to really drill down. Some people can't even name that it is fear that's driving them, right? Right. Uh, But to keep asking questions and to be open-minded, I think we're living in a time of really increased polarization. Mm -hmm. And so the more we can ask questions about why people are expressing the sentiments that they are Mm. uh, and then help them understand, particularly with refugees, who refugees actually are, right? right? To tell human interest stories. Because I can give you all the statistics in the universe, Mm -hmm. but you can give me a different set right back. Numbers don't sound like people. Absolutely not. But Mm -hmm. people sound like people. And so when we tell the stories of refugees, when we tell the stories of mothers who want a better life for their children, when we tell the story of fathers who want to be able to express their political opinions without having their lives threatened, that's when we help people break down those walls and those barriers, and I think we get past that fear. What does a refugee resettlement organization do when it doesn't have enough refugees to resettle because they're not being let in? So we continue to advocate staunchly and strongly for the United States refugee admissions to try Mm -hmm. to get those numbers up. So advocacy is a huge part of what we're doing right now, both to ensure that the numbers are what they should be Mm -hmm. and that the funding for that program remains secure so that we can resettle people. Uh, We also assist thousands of refugees who are already here in this country. You know, refugees come to this country and that's just the first step in really rebuilding their lives. So a lot of what we do is try to help refugees integrate into their communities to find Mm -hmm. jobs, to learn English, uh, to enroll their kids in school, all the things that you would imagine you would need to do as you rebuild your life. Uh, So we have thousands of volunteers who are helping us to do that in addition to our professional staff. Uh, And again, that advocacy is just so critical in this moment. 
You mentioned volunteers, which is great because I'm wondering, you know, given your placement, you know, being here in this city, the city of immigrants, um, which so many cities are, what has been the community or public reaction to your organization? Are you seeing more people reaching out, wanting to help out, or having thoughts or ideas that they want to share? Or are you seeing people back away? Are you seeing people sort of, you know, separate themselves from the organization? So I often say to people that in this moment that is really a devastating moment for refugees and for those who support them, the real note of comfort, in Hebrew we say the nechemta, the sort of note of comfort, mm -hmm. is for me, the American Jewish movement for refugees. We wow. are seeing thousands of people kind of come out of the woodwork, people who decades ago perhaps helped uh, Soviet Jewry come to this country mm -hmm. uh, or Ethiopian Jewry and who are now helping refugees who aren't Jewish predominantly, right. which is amazing. Uh, we have thousands of volunteers who are doing pro bono legal work with mm -hmm. our clients, uh, who are doing English language tutoring. Mm -hmm. We write to asylum seekers who are in detention. Over the last year, about 14 months, we've seen tens of thousands of people across the country actually come out. Uh, to demonstrations, to rallies, to protests. Uh, last January, we had a—last uh, February, after the January executive order, we had a huge rally uh, in Battery Park looking at the Statue of Liberty. You know, it was an icy, sleety day, and there were thousands mm -hmm. of people standing there in that sleet to say that there is nothing more American than welcoming refugees wow. and nothing more Jewish either. Wow. Talk to me about that. When you say there's nothing more Jewish than mm -hmm. that, what does that mean? Because I know that a lot of the work you do, obviously, is fueled by your faith, you know, not in spite of your faith. How do you—how did you come to an understanding that your faith sort of, like, maybe even required this work of you? Absolutely. So the first thing I'll say, which you sort of said earlier, is that mm -hmm. Hyas is a Jewish refugee resettlement organization. Yes. So we're 137 years old, and we were founded uh, when Jews were coming to this country from Eastern Europe, and mm -hmm. they were fleeing violence and persecution because of who they were. Right. Uh, and we helped Jews for about 120 years. And then around the turn of the 21st century, when those waves of Jewish refugees slowed, we turned our, our attention to people of other faiths, other ethnicities. Right. We like to say that we used to help refugees because they were Jews. Jewish, and now we do it because we are Jewish. Right. And I would say that comes from two places, both our values and our history. Mm -hmm. On the history piece, personally, how did I, as a rabbi, end up sitting here talking to you about refugees? Mm -hmm. I'm the great-granddaughter of someone who, had the idea of refugee existed, would have been considered a refugee. She came wow. to this country when she was 16 years old, fleeing violence in Russia. She worked in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. She survived the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. She mm -hmm. went on to give testimony at the trial of the the factory owners, as a 16-year-old immigrant who didn't even speak English. She did wow. that through a Yiddish interpreter. And I'm named for her. And so I really see this work as my legacy, as her namesake. Wow. Right? That's When I say this is Jewish history, this is my history mm -hmm. as a Jew. Um, how does that history transform into values? The Torah, Judaism's central book, more than anything else that the Torah talks about, the Torah talks about the obligation to the stranger. So it says wow. 36 times in 36 different ways that we're supposed to love, honor, protect, welcome the stranger. It is a core value. And I think what is most magical about that is that it's born of our history. We're told, love the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt, so you know the soul of the stranger. And that Hebrew word for soul is nefesh. 
so it gets translated as soul, but I think that it means you know the vulnerability of the stranger. Like You yeah. know what it was like to have to rebuild your life, right. uh, and you have an obligation to do that for other people. Wow. Wow. I love that you talk about it. I love the way you talk about this. Um, it's also the anniversary of the SS St. Louis, um, which I talked about a little bit in the intro, but can you give us a little more sure. information there? So the SS St. Louis was a boat that carried uh, 937 German-Jewish refugees out of Germany. And it was supposed to, as you mentioned, set sail to Cuba. Mm -hmm. But while it was sailing, uh, immigration laws in Cuba changed. And so when it reached Cuba, Cuba turned the boat away. There was, however, this amazing and very gutsy ship captain who Mm -hmm. essentially refused to return those refugees to Germany. And so he then systematically tried to find other places for this boat to go. Uh, It looked like Canada might be an option, but it wasn't, Mm -hmm. sadly. Uh, He eventually, a a few of the refugees were able to disembark in Cuba. They had visas. Uh, But just over 900, about 907, he took to Florida to try to gain entry. And the United States said no and Mm -hmm. closed our doors to that boat. Ultimately, he was able to take those refugees back to Belgium. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as we know, ultimately, uh, much of Europe came under Nazi occupation, and so many of the people who returned, uh, just over 250 of them, were ultimately murdered uh, in Nazi death camps. And it it boggles my mind that we're seeing this repetition in history. Talk to me about that. Talk to me about that repetition. Talk to me um, about how this sort of lines up with what we're seeing today with Syria. Absolutely. So the crisis in Syria is the largest crisis, but it's really one of so many, right? Mm -hmm. We're in, right now, we are currently in the worst refugee crisis in recorded history. So we've surpassed even the crisis post-World War II. There are 65 million people displaced from their homes around the world. Mm -hmm. Of that 65 million, just over 23 million are refugees. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for the audience to understand who a refugee is. It's actually a a definition, a legal definition that was born out of the ashes of the Holocaust. Uh, So in 1951, the 1951 Refugee Convention said that a refugee was a person who had escaped violence and persecution because of who they were. So their race, their religion, their nationality, their Mm -hmm. political opinion, or what's called membership in a social group. And those people are entitled to protection. The ways in which we're seeing history repeat itself is that we're closing our borders and we're setting not a great example for the other nations of the world, right? Right. Historically, the United States, since the inception of the U.S. refugee admissions program, Mm -hmm. the U.S. has been a leader, a global leader in U.S. resettlement. We used to resettle more refugees than all of the other countries that resettle refugees combined. Uh, And by reducing that number, the number of refugees that can come each year is called the presidential determination. We've reduced that number by more than a half. And in so doing, we've reduced the total numbers uh, slots for refugee resettlement by more than a half. Right. So I think, you know, in, in the Jewish tradition, in the Jewish community, we often, when we f- learn about the Holocaust, when we talk about the Holocaust, we say never again. Mm-hmm. And so I keep asking myself, what do these words mean mm-hmm. in the context of these really xenophobic anti-refugee policies? It's not the fulfillment of never again. It, no. It's, we're in it again. Right, Absolutely. So for people who would like to volunteer with your great organization, how do they do that? So there are all kinds of ways to volunteer. The three, four, I'll say four big ways that I usually uh, suggest that people help are to educate, 
to advocate, to donate, and to serve. Mm -hmm. So education-wise, this is a vast crisis. As I said earlier, I could give you a ton of facts and figures. I think those are important to know. And they are, it's equally important. Unfortunately, I'm so sorry. We're running out of time. Is there a website that people can yes, come to? Absolutely. I'm so, so sorry. Folks should yeah. go to www.hiaas.org, mm -hmm. and they'll find the myriad ways that they can help. Fantastic. Great. Hopefully, we'll have you back sometime. Yeah. Um, this conversation has to continue. Thank you so absolutely. much for being Thank here. Thank you for having me. We like to talk about the Gowanus Canal on this show. It's dirty. But there's a body of water in Brooklyn that's dirtier. That's right, Newtown Creek on the border with Queens. If you'd like to learn how dirty and why, you can join a tour this Wednesday night. It's hosted by the organization of our next guest. And it's the kind of, can I say, travel experience he likes to share. Educational and, well, obscure. Dylan Thuris is co-founder of Atlas Obscura, and he's going to share with us some interesting and offbeat destinations near and far for summer travel. Thanks for coming on 112BK, Thank John. you for having me. It's great oh, to be here. Oh, my goodness. You, <laughs> let's start here. You tweeted recently, the moon rotates at uh. 10 miles per hour. You could bicycle in the opposite direction and stay in the sunlight forever. Is the moon on your personal travel list? Sure, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like late, you know, like late in life, in my 80s, it's got to be, there's got to be cheap flights to the moon by then. Right. Um, yeah, for sure. I love the, I'm fascinated by it, actually. Yeah. Elon Musk is working on that for us, right? He is. He's just, like, launching cars out there, like, left and right. Yeah. I yeah. Don't, <laughs> just like, yo, we're getting everybody to the moon. Yeah. Um, well, while you not, might not be going to the moon anytime soon, and this isn't necessarily part of Atlas Obscura, does this kind of nugget typify what you're striving for on the site? Like, sort of like the idea that, like, the weirdest places you could go and enjoy. That more uh, exemplifies me just as a being a weirdo <laughs> in the world. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by the way uh, we view the world around us and the way that right. sort of context and information changes how we view it and interact with it. And how, right. in fact, like yeah, the the moon is amazing, and there's all this crazy stuff that people don't realize about it. But that's also true for like the block over. Do you know what right. I mean? Like it's yes. sort of it's more about how you view places rather than how far away they are. I'm kind of interested in how people, what the Yelp reviews are going to look like when people start going to the moon. <laughs> one Is it, star. Right, one star for, like, the moon and stuff yeah. like that. It was so dark. Yeah, like, very I cold. Just, you know, it was <laughs> super cold. Like, I don't understand why anybody comes here. Yeah. Um, what have been some of the most interesting discoveries you've made while doing work for Atlas Obscura? Yeah, I mean, I'll just talk, uh, like, writ large or locally. I mean, hit me with some local stuff. Yeah. I'm really interested in that. All right, so I'll talk about some places really close to here that are some of my favorites. One, Please tell me right now. One of them, we're practically on top of it. So you know that the um, Brooklyn Transit Museum is very, very close to here. Yes. Wonderful place, old subway cars, worth a visit. Basically, two blocks over from there is something called the Atlantic Avenue Tunnel. Mm -hmm. you familiar with this at all? No, not at all. So it's, it's closed now completely. You can't visit it. But right. for years, you could go with a guy named Bob Diamond, and he would set up these kind of informal tours, and he'd take you down a manhole cover in the middle of Atlantic Avenue, and you would go into a giant, enormous brick-vaulted arch tunnel that lasted for six blocks until you hit a bulkhead. 
Behind that bulkhead is another six blocks of tunnels that no one has ever been in since they uh, closed it up in the 1860s. 18... What? Yeah, 1860s. Um, it's this unbelievable New York, Brooklyn treasure. This guy discovered it in the 1980s. He, like, went searching for it. He found the map that had its plans in the Brooklyn Borough President's office, and then, like, went down there and was the first person in there since they basically sealed the thing up. Did you go down there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they used to run tours, and then the Department of Transportation was like, you can't. This is insane. <laughs> There's, like, no fire escapes. You're, like, you're kind of just doing this on the, like, low down. So they stopped it, which is a real shame. My, my hope is that one day they'll... There'll, there'll be some way to open it back up because right. it's, a, it's a real New York treasure. It really is unbelievable. Oh, it sounds like um, it is. Yeah, so that's like literally here. I mean, we're like on top of it practically. Okay, I want to do that first of all. Yeah. Um, you have on the site Brooklyn as a destination with 173 cool and unusual things to do, which I can't imagine is true. Um, <laughs> but like, I, I, 173 oh. actually sounds quite low. Uh, we have the, so much uh, more, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. I, have no, I have no doubt. <laughs> we had the authors of Hidden in Brooklyn on the show not too long ago, and they were relative newcomers. So you've recently left. Thanks for nothing. What do you <laughs> still want to see here? Like, what's on your oh. like Brooklyn list still? Oh, that's a good that's a good question. Uh, so there is in Queens. There's an elevator museum that was collected by uh, like an elevator inspector for years and years and years. I think it's in kind of some weird in-between state right now, but I know he's still got all the stuff, so I want to I want to go check that out. Um, God, there's there's a lot. There's a um, a place I haven't been to since they opened up the center, which is the Weeksville Heritage Center. Oh yeah, I, w- I was out there before the center was open. Right. But Weeksville is this crazy site with an amazing history. It really. Is. Now there's this huge cultural center there, and so I'd love to go see that. There's a. Uh, there's a ton of there's a ton of stuff. Um, what else is on my New York list? You know, it's a place that we've actually brought people. It's on the site. I haven't been there yet. It's called the M Museum. Museum. It is a museum in a uh, elevator, basically a, a freight elevator. It's tiny. They open it up. There's like all of these strange objects. They sort of collect uh, like physical ephemera. Like they have the shoe that someone threw at George W. Bush during one of his press conferences. That's, like, in the museum. It's a good little place in Manhattan. Well, now I want to go to that as well. Um, You have a tour coming up on the 16th to the infrastructure surrounding (laughs) Newtown Creek, which, all right, man, sounds amazing. Tell us about the tour guide, Mitch Mitch Waxman. Mitch, yeah. Mitch Waxman. Mitch Waxman is, like, one of the great New Yorkers. Like, he really is, like, he... And he sort of chose uh, an area and said, I'm going to become the foremost expert in this area. And it was one of the like, least loved areas in New York, the kind of industrial stretch between Brooklyn and Queens that Newtown Creek runs through. It's got this crazy history because it goes way, way back when there were, like, whalers coming up that creek. But then it became this kind of toxic site with tons and tons of oil refineries. So he leads this tour that that breaks down all of that history and kind of, like, makes you fall in love with this, like, pretty uh, untraveled part of (laughs) of Brooklyn and Queens. Really incredible area, incredible tour. And also near there is the North Brooklyn Boat Club. Yeah. who will, uh, you know, take you out kayaking on, on Newtown Creek. It's a really amazing experience. It's cool to be, like, down that low in the water yeah. kind of experiencing. There's a lot of wildlife in certain parts of the creek now. Uh, yeah, so that's cool. Do people who go on the tour, will they get to 
kayak down there. That's a different thing. That's different, a different thing. Separate thing. We have worked with 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 them, but uh, but, it's but a this time, trip. yeah, this is a walking one. Okay, fantastic. Some people get a little nervous about getting that close to the Newtown Creek. Like people that are is... like, oh, I don't know. Well, I mean, I'm not gonna lie, Dylan. That sounds understandable yeah. given the yeah. description I've gotten so far yeah. of the Newtown Creek. Yeah. But I guess the only way to know for sure is to go see it yourself. You got to get in there. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate your time. I hope people check it out take the tour if nothing else they need to go to atlasobscura.com because it's amazing thank you so much thank you and have a good day nice to meet you lovely to meet you <laughs> Bye. oh you want to like shake hands i don't know is that the, is it, yeah, yeah that's what we're doing now was at the end i was like yeah, trying to make it like officially like it's over that was good <laughs> goodbye everybody and that's the show for today. Tomorrow, Jarrett Murphy's back, and he'll be talking to Mike Long, chairman of New York State's Conservative Party. Plus, coming up later this month, it's National Tap Dance Day, and we'll pay tribute with a performance and learn how the legendary Bill Bojangles Robinson is connected to Brooklyn. See you then. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. Also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grichowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hagasek and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. And our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>